0: is the word of the Lord. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now help us understand how you are glorified not despite our afflictions, but through our afflictions. Help us believe that as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we will also share abundantly in comfort. Be glorified through your church, O Lord, as we proclaim your word and make disciples of all nations. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What does it take to make a name for yourself in this country, in the UAE? What does it take to become popular and respected? What would you say that this culture values? Well, some would say tradition and tolerance. Others would say wealth, power, influence, self-promotion, You need all of this to to make it big here, to to get ahead, to make a mark for yourself. Now, unfortunately, there are some people who advocate that this is how we ought to think about ministry in a local church. Brand yourself. Get attractive venues. Be culturally relevant. Be self-confident. Be an innovator, a, a visionary. Talk about similarities and not differences. Get a government official or a local celebrity to attend your church, buy real coffee machines, hand out lollipops to kids at the door. This is what the the church growth experts are telling us these days. They say that if the church must grow and be successful, then like any other institution or business, it must look amazing and attractive to the world. It must esteem the values of its culture. It must embody those values. And part of this philosophy is what drives the prosperity gospel preachers. They say that Christians must be powerful and impressive if they want the world to take their message seriously. But Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians that true gospel ministry bears the marks of Christ's suffering. And it looks unimpressive and foolish in the eyes of the unbelieving world. The ministry of the apostolic word of the cross is undertaken by Christ like sufferers. And this ministry is marked by trials and afflictions, toil and discouragement, sorrow, and tears. Brothers, God in His wisdom works through His people in this way on purpose so that A, the world with its values can look foolish, that's 1 Corinthians 1.25, and B, so that His saving power can shine against the background of our weakness and frailty. And in this way, God is glorified. God alone is glorified and no human can boast. Now, even though Paul had taught the Corinthians this, that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, the Corinthian church had gone astray. Certain Jewish men who claimed to be apostles infiltrated the church and they won the members over not because they were godly and sincere, but because they were very impressive by cultural standards. These men embodied in their person and leadership everything that Corinthian culture held in high regard. Power, status, rhetoric, self-promotion. And in an attempt to establish their worldly leadership over the church, these men influenced the congregation to turn against Paul. They began to discredit him and his apostolic ministry by saying things like this. They said, how can this man be an apostle when his ministry is marked... By suffering and shame, and not success. If he was so important, why does he suffer so much? Plus, he's not impressive at all. He writes well, but he has no charisma, no personality, no stage presence, and he lacks flair in his speaking. Now, when Paul heard about these men and what they were teaching, he made a a, a quick visit to Corinth, but was opposed and humiliated by a certain member. And as a result of this, he left and in great anguish and tears, wrote a firm letter to the Corinthians, calling them to repent of what they had done. Now, when the Corinthians received this letter, through the hand of Titus, by the grace of God, a majority of them repented. And they even disciplined the offender. And he too repented as a result. But they failed to forgive this man. And they failed to restore him back to the church. And so one of the reasons why Paul wrote 2 Corinthians was to exhort the Corinthians to forgive this repentant man and to restore him back to fellowship. But in this letter, Paul also addresses many of the criticisms that these false apostles were leveling against him. You see, this wasn't just a leadership issue. This had to do with the very gospel that Paul was preaching. A challenge to his apostolic ministry was a challenge to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so far from shying away from suffering, Paul says that God has good purposes for our suffering. And in all our affliction, God brings us to the end of ourselves so that we might rely on Him who raises the dead. And in that way, God comforts His people. He not only cheers our spirits and calms our fears, but He also emboldens us in our beliefs. And He empowers us to do what is God-glorifying. You see, through our suffering, God gets glory for Himself as we praise Him and encourage one another with the same comfort that we have received from His Word. Beloved, this is how members of a congregation labor and work for each other's joy and comfort. Now at this point in chapter 2, Paul continues to tell them about his travels. Uh, He had not visited them when he said he would, because he had decided to, to write to them that letter of rebuke, and he had been waiting to see how the Lord would work in their hearts. But in the meanwhile, he was not sitting in a corner twiddling his thumbs. No, he was doing what Jesus told him to do. And so he, as he talks about that time, Paul lays down the foundation for his apostolic ministry. You see, Paul and the rest of the apostles were ministers of the new covenant. The new covenant that Jesus inaugurated with his blood. On the other hand, these false apostles were fascinated with the old covenant. They were big fans of Moses. And so Paul says to be a minister of the New Covenant, to preach the apostolic gospel of Christ and Him crucified is a call to suffer. We do ministry in this way because of theological reasons. We are ministers of the New Covenant. And this makes up the bulk of his argument all the way to chapter 7. Paul says this is what New Covenant ministry looks like. And while that may seem like losing In the eyes of the world, it's actually winning. It's actually winning because God is doing something powerful through the weak lives of His gospel ministers. And so friends, as we look at these verses together, as Paul makes the case for what new covenant apostolic ministry looks like, I think we, the members of this church, who have been entrusted with the gospel, who have been entrusted with the ministry of the apostolic word, I think we can be comforted, we can be encouraged to do two things. Number one, trust the Lord's leading in our afflictions. Trust the Lord's leading in your afflictions. And number two, thank Him for what He's doing through our afflicted lives. Thank Him for what He's doing through your afflicted lives. Let's think about point one. We should trust the Lord's leading. In our afflictions look at verses 12 to 13 when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ even though a door was opened for me in the Lord my spirit was not at rest now Troas was a port city in the northern coast of what would have been called Western Asia in those days a lot of human traffic moving in and out Paul says that he went there to preach the gospel of Christ. This was the same gospel that he proclaimed among the Corinthians. And there was a reason why Paul was in the region. This was part of his original plan, if you remember. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, which he didn't. We know that. He changed his plans and he sent them that letter. And to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So Paul was making his way towards Macedonia, and the Lord opened a door. And this simply means that God, in His providence, made a way for some work to be done. Now, we're not given the specifics of what happened, but we do know that Paul had been there once before. You can read about that in Acts 16. But irrespective of all the details, uh, it's the people he knew, the need that was perhaps expressed, perhaps the funding that fell into place for him to travel. Whatever happened, Paul knew that the Lord was leading him. He knew that the Lord was leading him. A door was opened for me in the Lord, he says. It was an opportunity that presented itself in the Lord's service. To preach the gospel to preach the gospel this is about the ministry of the apostolic word to preach the gospel in fact this entire passage highlights that look at verse 12 to preach the gospel verse 14 spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him verse 17 verse 17 we are not peddlers of what the word and then finally we speak in Christ. This is about the ministry of the word, of the gospel. See, Paul's ministry as an apostle is the ministry of preaching and teaching the word of the cross. And if you look at verse 17, it becomes obvious that he is contrasting true apostolic ministry with the ministry of these false apostles. See, Paul trusted that the Lord was leading him. Since what he was going to do was in line with what Jesus had called him to do he was appointed as chapter 1 verse 1 says as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to bear witness about him and yet we know that this was a time when he was suffering he was suffering Not only had he experienced that affliction in Asia that he tells us about in chapter 1, verse 8, but he had also been wounded by the Corinthians. This was an emotionally stressful time for Paul and he was very grieved and downcast. And yet, he had come to Troas because he trusted that the Lord was leading him. Beloved, is this how you think of open doors. You know, there are many Christians who assume that if the Lord opens a door, then you can be sure that nothing bad is going to happen. It will be smooth sailing. But that's not the way the Bible speaks of open doors. These are opportunities that the Lord in His providence gives you so that you may trust and obey Him. And suffering most often accompanies your obedience and sometimes It's the consequence of your obedience. Remember what Paul tells us in Philippians 129, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And as we learned before, Christian suffering in the Scriptures is very broad. We suffer not only because God has called us to it in a world that is hostile to Christ, but we also suffer because we live in a fallen world. We suffer because our bodies are dying. We suffer for the sake of preaching the gospel. We suffer because of opposition in the path of everyday obedience. And even in the church, we suffer because people sin against us. We suffer because of disappointments and discouragements and so much more. The suffering may be physical or it might be emotional or it may be both. But in all of it, the Lord leads us. He leads us. Beloved, when a brother or sister needs counsel, when they need to be corrected, when you see an opportunity to speak the gospel to an unbeliever that God has placed in your proximity, see that as an open door and not a closed door just because it's going to be hard. See those opportunities as open doors for the obedience of your faith, even if you are experiencing Some kind of affliction at that time. Trust that the Lord is leading you even in your affliction. Paul certainly did. But there was more distress awaiting him. He says, when I came, even though a door was open, my spirit was not at rest. He did not have any relief once he got there. He was restless, not because of the anguish he already had, but because it was compounded on arrival. Look at the text. My spirit was not at rest, or as we would say today, he had no peace of mind. Why? Because I did not find my brother Titus there. You see, Paul was expecting that Titus would meet him at Troas and give him an update about the Corinthians. Did they they repent? Did they discipline that man? Are things getting worse? Is the influence of these false teachers spreading? What about Chloe's household? How are they doing? What about Stephanus and Crispus and, and Gaius? See, Paul loved this church and he was longing to hear about them. But Titus had not arrived. And Paul says, my spirit was not at rest. You know, if the affliction in Asia felt like death, You see that in chapter 1, verse 9? Then this wait made him troubled and anxious. Remember, in those days, there was no email or phones. You just had to wait for the ship to arrive and hope and pray, pray that your friends were still on it. That they did not fall sick and die or drown because they were swept overboard or captured by pirates. You just had to wait. Pray that they would arrive. You see, I think Paul was afraid about how things might turn out in Corinth. He was fearful. And I'll tell you why I think that. Because this is how Paul describes his state after leaving Troas and arriving in Macedonia. Look at chapter 7, chapter 7 verses 5 to 6. (coughs) For even when we came into Macedonia from Troas, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, what does it say next, and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus eventually came. But at this point, Titus was not there. And did you notice how Paul addresses him? He calls him, my brother. This man was a Greek background Christian. And what does this Jewish background apostle call him? My brother. And right there, right there Paul gives the Corinthians and he gives us an example of how believers need each other and how we are to be instrumental in comforting one another. Beloved, let me ask you this. Do you have someone to turn to in this congregation when your spirit is not at rest? Who do you turn to? Remember, God has designed the church in such a way that we are dependent on each other for our growth and encouragement. You know, what these Corinthians did to Paul and everything else that happened after that, that led to this present moment, caused him great distress to the point that he found himself being unable to continue his ministry in Troas. Today, we would say he was overwhelmed just overwhelmed now in the eyes of the world at least in the eyes of those false apostles Paul would have been seen as a failure look at him they would have said you know what sort of leader is that and yet Paul wasn't walking away from his calling as an apostle in his pain he chose to do the next thing and brothers and sisters sometimes that's all that we can do Just do the next thing that the Lord has called you to do. Look at the text. So I took leave of them. He said his goodbyes and went on to Macedonia. You know, the Macedonia visit was was planned. He came to Troas to preach the gospel, and that's what he did. The them in verse 13, so I took leave of them, suggests that there were believers in Troas. Also, we know from Acts 20 that he came back to them. He visited them later, and he spent a whole week with them. You know, it was at, at Troas that our friend Eutychus fell off the window when Paul was preaching. So he came back and he did some more preaching. Now in this passage, it's very clear that it was Paul's inner turmoil. It was his inner distress that caused him to, to move on to Macedonia. You know, perhaps he thought, Titus hasn't arrived and the next ship isn't for several months. I just need to get on with it. I just need to go and minister to others as I planned. Perhaps Titus will meet me there. And he did. Paul was right. Titus did meet him there. You see, even though Paul was in pain, he was not paralyzed. I hope you see that. Even though he was in pain, he was not paralyzed. He sought to be faithful. Beloved, sometimes ministry in a local church can be discouraging as Paul's apostolic ministry was to him. Often in your evangelism, people will reject the gospel. Sometimes discipleship will be frustrating when people reject your counsel. Sometimes immature believers may misjudge you and slander you. And sometimes you may be pouring into someone's life for years and you won't see much fruit. Don't grow weary in doing good. God is bringing you to the end of yourself so that you don't rely on yourself, but trust in the one who raises the dead. Turn your eyes away from yourself. Turn your eyes away from your affliction and look to Him who leads you. And as you do that, thank Him. Thank Him. Friends, the antidote for all kinds of discouragement in gospel work, strangely enough, is thanksgiving. And that brings us to our second point. Thank the Lord for what He is doing through your afflicted life as you minister the gospel. Look at how Paul thinks of his ministry. Look at verse 14. But thanks be to God. Now that word, but, but thanks be to God, that word tells you that something contrary is being stated. Paul is saying, this is what my ministry looked like in Troas. Preaching the gospel while suffering, but thanks be to God who in Christ who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. When this happens to you, give thanks to God, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Give thanks to Him because He always leads you in this way. What way, Paul? In triumphal procession. And and you say, wait, that was triumphal procession? That doesn't make any sense. We're talking about an afflicted man in Troas... He's distressed and he's worried and he's struggling to minister the word of the gospel. How is that a picture of triumph? Paul says God is the one who leads us and he always leads us in triumphal procession. Now when we hear the word triumphal procession, we tend to think of a victory march. You know, as though God is leading this impressive parade of Christian soldiers marching triumphantly into the horizon. In the eyes of this of the world. This is a group of winners. And some translations affirm this interpretation and so they render this as God causes us to triumph. But that phrase triumphal procession is not what you think it means. This is a technical word. This is a technical word which was used to describe a particular kind of parade that the Corinthians would have been familiar with. This term was used to describe a procession which was held in order to honor a conquering Roman general. So the general would return from battle and then he would drive through the streets of Rome in his chariot in great pomp and celebration and all the crowds would gather and people would uh, throw flowers and priests would burn incense to pagan gods and the air would be filled with all these smells and sounds. And in his... Train would follow behind the general a procession of defeated captives in shackles. These were prisoners of war being led to their execution. And so to lead the triumphal procession was great but to be led in triumphal procession was not. You see, that's how Paul sees himself and the apostolic band, as captives being shamed and humiliated and suffering. And he says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. He says, God is the one who leads us in triumphal procession. God is the conquering one. Now, in one sense, when you hear that, that's a a frightening image, isn't it? Because Scripture tells us that God, this conquering one, is holy. And that He is a righteous judge. All of us have sinned against Him and deserve only His fury and wrath and condemnation. But friends, here's the good news. Did you notice how he leads us? Look at the verse. He leads us in Christ. He leads us in Christ. He's not leading us to our judgment. He is leading us in Christ as a father leads his children from suffering to glory. And that's the reason why Paul can give thanks and rejoice in his afflictions and discouragements. Friends, outside of Christ, we have no hope. And our afflictions are meaningless and pointless and we have nothing to look forward to other than eternal judgment. But the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preaches tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, came into our world and He died a shameful death on a cross in order to save those who would repent of their sins and put their trust in Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that this word of the cross, this message is foolishness to the world. It's not a message of worldly strength and power, but of weakness, of suffering, of shame. But here's what the world cannot see. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But here's what God in His grace has enabled us to see. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because through the suffering and death of Christ, we have been forgiven and justified. And through His resurrection from the dead, we have been given new life and have been united to Him through His Spirit. You see, to the world, Christ looked like a loser. If He was someone important, why would He lose like that? Why would He die such a shameful death? But on the cross, He triumphed, didn't He? He was the true victor who triumphed over the power of Satan's sin and death. And Paul puts it like this in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Because of Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. We have eternal life. And friend, if you're not a believer in Jesus, God offers to you this day the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. If you will turn away from your sins and put your trust in Christ alone. If you're not a Christian, if you can hear my voice, listen to it. Apart from Jesus Christ, you have no hope before a holy God on the day of your judgment. But if you turn to Jesus, you will be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God. You can know Him as your Father and He will lead you and He will love you and He will use your life for His glory. Turn to Christ and you will be saved. Beloved, God has called every believer to proclaim the gospel. He has given the church its commission to bear witness, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, to plant churches, to appoint godly men, to shepherd the flock, to teach members, to obey everything that Christ has commanded, to instruct men and women of every nation in the obedience of faith. And as we suffer in that task, we can give thanks to God that He is leading us in Christ by glorifying Himself through our words and through our afflicted lives. God always leads you in Christ in triumphal procession. You see, how you understand that phrase, triumphal procession, is the key to understanding true gospel ministry. True biblical ministry in a local church is like this. Friends, becoming a Christian doesn't vaccinate you against trials and afflictions. Paul, reflecting on his experience in Troas, is thankful that God always leads us in this way. And so there is a sense in which if you're not contending with hardship or difficulty or some kind of affliction, whether that's open hostility and physical persecution, whether it's the emotional burden of Counseling someone or being anxious about a a difficult conversation that you're going to have when you confront a brother in a sin or whatever word ministry you're engaged in, if you're doing it faithfully and speaking the truth in love, listen, it's going to take something out of you. It is, how could it not? You will have to enter into the hard task of self-denial, fighting your sin and suffering distress of some form or the other. Beloved, a disciple is not above his master. If Christ walked the road of suffering and rejection on his way to glory, then so will we. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the great paradox of the Christian life that is so common on the pages of the New Testament. Those things that seem to be suffering and shame are in fact our glory and triumph. Just like the cross, a symbol of death becomes the symbol of our salvation. This is important for ministry in the local church as much as it was important for Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say to you what I said on January 17, 2014. Some of you were, were there when we had our first service in charger. And I don't know if you'll remember it, but this was the very passage that I preached from. And so after nearly 10 years, I feel like I've come full circle. And I need to say this again. Brothers, do not be enamored by worldly models of ministry that have forsaken the message of the cross. Do not be enamored with power and success and triumphalism. The Christians at Corinth were blinded by this and so they succumbed to the wiles of preachers who were successful and popular. Beloved, you will always face this temptation. This temptation to turn to worldly methodologies simply because they seem to work. You will be tempted to let people belong to the church before they can believe. You will be tempted to run programs that will please unbelievers instead of calling them to repentance and faith. You will be tempted to entertain people instead of preaching the word that saves and preserves. You'll be tempted to be impressed by giftings and skills instead of character. Remember that Paul not only preached the cross, but it also shaped his apostolic ministry. And it should shape ours as a church. But in all our afflictions, we can trust and thank God that he is doing something through it. He's doing something through it. What's he doing? Look at the next verse. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, that's what he's doing, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul says, as I preach the gospel, the knowledge of who God is, And what he has done for sinners in Jesus Christ spreads and it smells awesome. Isn't that weird? I mean, why talk about this in terms of smell? I mean, why not sound? He's talking about preaching, isn't he? It would make sense if he said it spreads the sound of the knowledge. Or here's a better one, if you want to be a bit artsy, the melody of the good news. Now that makes sense. But he says odor, fragrance. It's weird, isn't it? Unless he's trying to make a point about this task of preaching. Or in our case, as we apply this, to us preaching, to us doing the ministry of the word to non-Christians and to one another. How are we, as new covenant Christians, called to live? What does Paul say in Ephesians 5 Verse 2, here's what he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the reason Paul uses the word fragrance is because he wants us to think about sacrifices in the Old Testament. You could smell what was burning on the altar. You could smell it. And if you offered it according to God's word, it would be acceptable and a pleasing aroma to God. That's a very Old Testament term. Fragrance, pleasing aroma. And Paul says when the apostles preach and the gospel is spread, that task is an offering to God. Friends, this is a worship issue. To do this is to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. But this not just through our words, but it's also through our lives, through the afflicted lives of those engaged in this word ministry. Now, we've already considered this in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. In every kind of affliction, God brings us to the end of ourselves so that we may rely on Him who raises the dead. Every affliction in the path of obedience is tantamount to a death. And every time God in his power comforts us and uses us in the service of others is tantamount to a resurrection Paul says it like this in 2nd Corinthians four ten: we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies according to Paul Christian suffering is like or tantamount to the cross it's a figurative death that we experience and Christian comfort God's encouragement that enables us to endure and spiritually thrive and minister to others is like a resurrection. It's a figurative resurrection, a powerful work of the Spirit that sustains our faith and causes us to endure. When we suffer in this way, and God comforts us in this way by seeing this pattern, by seeing this pattern of death and resurrection unfold in our lives, People will not only get to hear the gospel, but they will get to see the God of the gospel at work in our lives. That's the point he's making. God always leads us in triumphal procession. And because of what he is doing through his afflicted saints, we can rejoice and we can give him thanks. You see, the point of that paradoxical phrase is to help us understand one of the most important themes in this letter. That God manifests his power in our weakness, in our sufferings, in our afflictions. Beloved, this was characteristic of Paul's apostolic ministry. Let me ask you this. Is it characteristic of your word ministry to the world? Is it characteristic of your word ministry as a member of this church? Is the Lord spreading the fragrance of His knowledge through the hardships of your ministry? Oh, brothers and sisters, trust God in your afflictions, the ones that you face in the work of evangelism, as well as the ones that you face in your work of discipleship, and thank Him for it. For you and I are called to a tremendous privilege to not just minister the Word of Christ, but to be a picture of Him in our affliction. Why does God do it this way? Well, here's the reason. Look at the next verse, verse 15. For, that's the reason, for we, referring to the apostles, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul says, as the apostolic word of the cross goes forth and we suffer, we will be an aroma, the sweet smell of Christ to God. It will be pleasing in His sight. As we offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices in the work of ministering His word, we will smell like His Son. We will smell like His Son. We will smell like Jesus. That's what it means. But that's not all. Notice that Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Think about that. Irrespective of the results, whether people get saved or perish, whether they repent and believe in Jesus or whether they reject Him and perish, Paul says we are the aroma of Christ to God among both. Among both. Beloved, this is comforting. This should be comforting to you. This is a good reminder that what the Lord is pleased with is our faithfulness and clarity. Only he is sovereign over the results. So brothers and sisters, as you labor to make Christ known in this world, as you labor to build up one another in the faith, this should comfort your hearts. There's no secret formula that you have to figure out. No complicated statistics that we must break our heads about. There's no special strategy or innovative program. Successful gospel ministry, according to Paul, does not depend on how many programs we have. It does not depend on the size of the church. It does not depend on the size of our budget. It does not depend on the ethnicity of our members. It depends on faithfulness and truthfulness to the message. And as long as you do that, you will be an aroma of Christ to God. Now here's something that we see and it's something that we've seen before. Paul's life and Paul's message cannot be separated. And so the word of the cross, spoken through his suffering apostles, divides humanity. The gospel divides humanity. Notice how similar this is. This verse is to 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice how the message is perceived. Verse 16. To one a fragrance from death to death, To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Here's what he's saying. We, the suffering apostles, are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one, that is to one group of people, the perishing, those who reject Christ, we are a fragrance from death. Whose death? Christ's death. Because that's what they're preaching in the gospel. From Christ's death, and what does this wonderful offering lead to in their case? To their death, to their condemnation. In the same way, to the other group, those who are being saved, to them, the words of the afflicted apostles are from fragrance, are a fragrance from life. Whose life? The resurrection life of Christ. And what does this wonderful offering lead to in their case? To life, to eternal life. Now, why does Paul want us to know this? If we know this, here's why. If we know this, if we have this theological understanding of how gospel ministry works, if we know what the Lord is doing through the ministry of the word by his afflicted saints, then our thanksgiving to God will not be thin and weak and watered down, but it will be weighty and joyous irrespective of our circumstances and irrespective of what the world may think. Beloved, such is the glorious privilege we have as we tell others about Jesus and labor for each other's joy and comfort. Think about this. When we share the gospel with someone and they show some interest or if they come to faith, we rejoice and give thanks to God, don't we? But what if they don't? What about when you have, what about the situation when you have a hard conversation and the person hearing you treats you poorly, maybe yells at you and rejects the gospel? Would you give thanks to to the God who leads you in triumphal procession? You know, if we don't, and I suspect that most of us don't, that says something about us, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters, thank Him for that open door. Remember that you are an aroma of Christ to God. Pray for this person's salvation by all means. But even if he rejects the gospel, thank God for His sovereign wisdom because God is always doing something through His Word. He's either saving or condemning. He's either softening or hardening. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to other, a fragrance from life to life. And we are called to thank Him for both. Now, if that's what God is doing through His Word, and He's doing it through us, then we should rightly feel the weight of this tremendous responsibility. When people are saved, God's grace is magnified, the aroma ascends to God, and when people are further hardened and await their condemnation, God's justice is magnified, and the aroma ascends to God. What does that tell you? It tells you that we worship a sovereign God who is mighty to save and will be glorified no matter what the outcome. You have an awesome responsibility of preaching a message that has eternal consequences. Think about this. You are agents of God for life or death. Paul knows this, and he wants us to know this. This is why he bursts out by saying, look at the verse, who is sufficient for these things? As if to say, who can be a bearer of such a word? Who is hikanos? That's the word in Greek. Who is adequate for these things? Now, in one sense, I think it would be theologically right to say no one. No one is, only God is. He is the all-sufficient one. But in in another sense, Paul's whole point in this passage is to say, unlike those false apostles, he is sufficient for these things because he trusts in the very gospel that he preaches. This is why he says a few verses later, look down at chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has what? Made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. This is a phenomenal claim that he makes. As a true apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul has astounding faith in the word of the cross. He's looking outside of himself to claim sufficiency. He's looking to God who not only leads him in his suffering, but also works through his proclamation to spread the fragrance of life or death. We know that this is about apostolic sufficiency because the next verse Verse 17 gives us the ground or the reason. Who is sufficient? The implied answer from Paul is, we are. For, that's the reason. Here's why the reason they're sufficient. Look at verse 17. We are not like them. We are not like them. For we are not like so many, referring to these false apostles who were leading the Corinthians astray. We are not like them. And what does he call them? Peddlers of God's word. They teach God's word to make a quick buck. These men are hucksters. They don't have an understanding about the power of the true gospel. He's really getting at their motives, isn't he? That's what he's doing. We know that because of what he says in the next verse. We are not like them, but as men of sincerity. This is what he argued in chapter 1, verse 12, that he was a man of godly sincerity who cared more about the wisdom of God as displayed in the cross than the wisdom of the world. The apostles are men of sincerity. They are commissioned by God. Look at that phrase. This is an appeal to his authority in the sight of God. We are aware that God is watching. He sees all, and one day we will stand before him and give an account. We do this in his sight. And then he says, we speak, we preach, we teach, we speak in Christ, in Christ. We minister His Word in fellowship with Jesus and in fellowship with members of the body. We are not free-floating agents seeking to make a business of preaching the Word. That's not us. Beloved, Paul's description of his apostolic task and his sufferings can teach us a lot about what faithful Christian ministry founded on the word ought to look like. I hope you can see that. Trust that the Lord is leading you in your afflictions. Don't use your hardships and trials as an excuse to be disobedient to Christ's commands, but rather embrace them. Know that your word ministry and your afflictions are the means by which God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Remember that the kind of gospel ministry that the Lord is pleased with is portrayed in weakness and not in strength. It's portrayed in our weakness to show that the real power and strength comes from God. So lean on Him for strength. Lean on His all-sufficient Word and remember that He makes you sufficient for this task. So praise and thank Him for what He's doing through your ministry in the world and in the church, even if you can't see the results. And remember that your work, your obedience, is a pleasing aroma to Him. So I want you to be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged. In all your trials, all your afflictions, remember that it is your Heavenly Father, the Father of mercies, who leads you in Christ. And He will supply you with all the strength and comfort that you need all the days of your life. And you can be joyful so that you can patiently endure your afflictions and so that you can glorify Him always. Be encouraged. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your comforting Word. And Lord, even as we see and read and understand Your Word and recognize the, the tremendous weight of the task that you have called us to. Lord, we pray that we would not be proud, that we would be humble and dependent on you, on the power of your spirit, and that we would press forward no matter how hard the task gets. Lord, we ask that you would be our sufficiency, strengthen us and comfort us for every task that you have called us to. And We ask that you would be glorified through our sufferings.